Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Polyglot Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing the unique voices and stories of language learners and unique individuals from all over the world. For those who are new here, my name is Claire, I'm a teen who loves learning languages, and I'm the host of this podcast show. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Taisha Tan, who's currently a linguistic student studying at Harvard University. We'll be talking all about her research in historical linguistics and her research in the Austronesian languages of West Timor. And we'll be covering topics like how do how does historical linguistics inform our understanding of things like human migration and how do languages evolve. So I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another podcast episode. Today, we have a very special guest. So do you want to start by introducing yourself, where you're from, and your background? Yeah, sure. So hi, my name is Tamisha Tan. Um, I'm originally from Singapore, but I'm currently finishing up a PhD in linguistics at Harvard University. Uh, before coming to this Cambridge, I did my undergraduate at uh, the University of Cambridge in England, uh, where I also was doing a bachelor's in linguistics. Um, right now, I focus on fieldwork linguistics as well as historical linguistics. So I basically try to um, investigate understudied languages in order to determine how they developed and what they can tell us about language and grammar in general. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that sounds so cool. And I'm really excited to delve a little bit more into those fields today. So what first interested you into the field of linguistics and also your subfields as well? Right. So when I was a kid, I kind of really wanted to be like Indiana Jones, but like the linguistics mm-hmm. version. So I wanted to be the type of person who got to go to, you know, different places to kind of investigate languages. And in particular, I was really interested in undecided languages. So there are lots of languages, you know, that have been kind of left behind and we still have evidence of it because we can see that, you know, they wrote it down using stone or like on leaves and stuff, but we have no idea what they say. Right. But that doesn't mean it's impossible, because if you're a linguist and if you're a good enough archaeologist, there are many methods and, and techniques you can use to kind of figure that out. So th- um, so that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be the sort of person who looked at these kind of remnants from lost cultures and mm-hmm. tried to figure out what they said, because I felt like that was kind of like the moving messages for us. Right. That's telling them stories about what it was like for them. You know, even if it's a boring thing, like this a trade inventory, it tells us so much about what they were trading. So I was really interested in that because on Singapore, we actually have a big stone. It's called the Singapore Stone. And on it, we have an undeciphered script. So we have no idea what language it is, what language family it's from. All we know is that they left it there in, in the riverbed. And so as a child, my dream was to be able to, you know, decipher that. And that's how I kind of got into linguistics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's so cool. I love that little origin story with the Indian <laughs> analogy. Yeah. So what are some current like research or yeah, things that you're exploring right now. Yeah, so um, I currently focus on Amarasi, which is a, a language of West Timor. So I basically, I go to Indonesia. Um, I just came back from a two-month trip there, and I kind of like stay and live together with the language-speaking community of Amarasi in order to basically learn and help them document the language. Mm. Um, so what I'm currently focusing on is, although we know a lot about Austronesian languages, which are like the languages of Oceania, this is Maori, this is Hawaiian, uh, but this is also like things like Malay, Indonesian, uh, Tagalog, that's all Austronesian. We know very little about the Austronesian languages of basically um, like the Papuan area or East Indonesian area, right? So these are very understudied. And what's even less known about that is that if you don't have a good description of the language as it currently is, then how can you know where it came from and how can you know 
what it was like historically. So the reason why I go into the field to work and document the language is not only to help you know, discover its synchronic properties, but also try and figure out what's its position. For example, what is the relationship between the languages of Timor and the languages of Hawaii, right? Because they're so far away, but we know historically that they are related. And I'm trying to figure out how and stuff like that. Okay, yeah, I see. So for the audience who aren't quite familiar with like these Austronesian languages of West Timor, can you provide a brief overview of what these languages are like? Yeah, sure. So um, the Austronesian languages of West Timor they are basically interesting for a number of reasons. They show very different properties from Austronesian languages uh, in the rest of the world. So Austronesian languages typically have quite a small consonant inventory. So for example, Hawaiian has one of the smallest consonant inventories of any language, right? Um, and in these regions, in Timor specifically, because the people there have had a very long kind of relationship, contact relationship with non-Austronesian languages. So they even have contact with Aboriginal speakers, for, for example, right? Or like Papuans and Melanesians. They have like a really wild consonant inventory because they'll start getting things like implosive sounds or prenasalized stops, all these things that are really hard, or like implosive prenasals, which are things like book, you know, all these things that are very difficult for a normal uh, non-native speaker to pronounce. Um, which are which are kind of unusual. We've also developed um, properties like a different type of word order, a different type of possession system, um, and they're basically very divergent. One of the biggest things about languages in these regions is that they actually have subject agreements. So for example, if, in English, if you say I eat, but he eats, their little S is marking that it's a different subject, right? Because it's third mm -hmm. person. Um, but this is not common for Austronesian languages. But all of the languages of uh, Timor, for example, have developed this. And so that's quite interesting because it's developing kind of complexity in its um, kind of inflectional and agreement system. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I see. So would these languages that you're studying right now also be considered endangered languages because not many people are speaking them right now? And is your work also trying to like preserve these languages in some way? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So Indonesia is really interesting because there are more than 700 different languages spoken mm -hmm. in Indonesia and very few of them are well documented. But because Indonesia is one of the biggest countries in the world, both in terms of population and geography, um, even if you have 700 languages, every single one of them can have a lot of speakers, right? So the language I work on myself, Amarasi, it's a minority language, but it still has like I think 70,000 speakers, oh, wow. right? So you can have a language that's super widely spoken, but it's not written down or there's no tip, there's no consistent spelling or like there's just no formal tools, right? They don't have like books or grammars, which they can use to teach the next generation. And because of that, um, it's kind of weird because it's like a millennial language, <laughs> right? So no one who is younger than a millennial speaks it anymore. So when I go and people are like, you know, 25, 24, they can still speak it. But as soon as you hit like a 19 year old, they have absolutely no idea. And so this is an interesting type of, um, language loss because it's one because typically when you find this kind of generational differences it's between like the elderly slash middle age and everyone younger than that so this one is really like a almost like a teenager early 20s split which gives me hope because it means that it's probably still salvageable but it's just very interesting because you don't feel like it's being lost until you go to a school and you realize that well no one uses this anymore so it's kind of like a, a unusual case of this yeah, I see. I find that really interesting that there's like almost a generational divide 
that's occurring within the language. And I'm also interested in the subject ag verb agreement that you were talking about earlier and that kind of shift towards that. So is that like an instance of the language evolving in some way and what led to that change? Yeah, so um, this is a very typical instance of like kind of grammaticalization. So to give an example, right, like when we use function words, especially things like pronouns, these are words that we use really, really often, right? Like I, me, you, these are some of the most frequent words in the English language if you just go by um, type or talking frequency. And so the idea is that because every sentence you have to say who's doing something, right? Unless you're speaking mm -hmm. Chinese or Turkish, um, you have to say like, I'm here, I'm, I, I saw him often these words get like really reduced, right? So you don't say, I saw him, you're just like, I saw him, right? Where it becomes just, mm, I saw him. Or like, um, did you, if you say, did you see that? It can be like, you see that? Where it becomes, yeah, it's not even fully you, essentially. And so what happens is in the development of subject agreement, because they're so frequently used and because they kind of get like phonologically squished and reduced, they kind of grammaticalize into just kind of like little prefixes. Right. So imagine a world where instead of every time uh, I was referring to you eat something, I can just say eat something. And that just means you eat something and we no longer have to say the, the you pronoun or something like that. Right. So that's basically what happens in these languages. You use the form so much that they get kind of phonologically squished down and then speakers are like, well, OK, I always have to use it. And that's how they become a prefix. Hmm. Yeah. OK, yeah, I see. And I guess would that leave almost like a permanent change in the language itself because it's not documented so there's no way of like seeing I guess what the original right way was if it gets yeah. adopted and used that way right absolutely that's one of the really interesting things about doing historical linguistics mm -hmm. on non-European languages because the idea is that we have such good records for example of Latin and ancient Greek mm -hmm. going back thousands of years because of how they wrote things down and more specifically what materials they use and the weather of, you know, and the climate of Europe, for instance, right? We know that um, uh, there was, it, it's very dry basically. And so we were able to preserve a lot of like parchment, a lot of like, they use animal skin to write things on and all that doesn't really decompose in a dry environment. But as soon as you go to the tropics, as soon as you go to Asia, they were writing on things like leaves. And because it's so moist and humid, yeah. um, basically everything just kind of disappeared, right? Because it just kind of decomposed after just 10 or 20 years. And so it's really difficult to do historical lingu linguistics on languages of this region because we don't have any re resources, mm -hmm. right? So like the earliest texts that I find um, are from Dutch missionaries or Portuguese missionaries who've gone over in the 1800s. And so I'm reading texts from 1850, let's say, but from a historical perspective, this is way too recent that it can't even, that it doesn't really shed light on what the language looks like. Mm -hmm. And so one of the key things that you have to kind of change in your mindset when you do historical linguistics for a less documented language is that you have to rely on um, synchronic, that is currently present irregularities in the language rather than trying to actually find texts that show you what the language used to look like. So you kind of have to walk backwards. Hmm. And so the kind of secret to historical linguistics is that languages like to be regular. And so if there's any irregularity in a language, for example, like go went, why is it went, why is it not go? Or for example, child, children, why is it not child, childs? Those type of irregularities tell you that something happened in the history of the language that gave rise to this, that introduced this change. And so when you notice these kind of weird patterns happening, that's when you sit down and think, okay, what could be the source for this irregularity? And that's how you do backwards historical linguistics work. So in the context of um, 
Amar what I do is, you know, I sit down and when I learn the language, I try and think, okay, what are the most irregular parts that are most difficult for me to learn and how could they have come, come about? But I also look at things like dialect differences, right? So these, um, the communities are very widespread because Timor is like absolutely huge. And so even though they live in like villages, from one village to the next, they speak the same language, but there can be a total differences in, for example, their word for um, scorpion or things like that. It's the same thing as in English, right? If you're talking about soda, people call it pop, people call it soda, people call it fizzy drinks. It's exactly the same thing. But the idea is that when you have this kind of dialect variety, that also tells you something about the history of the language. Because then you can figure out, okay, which one is older? Why did they change the word from soda to pop or whatever? And so those are the kind of techniques that you have to use if you're not dealing with a well-documented language from a historical perspective. Yeah, I see. Okay. And so what are some causes that might cause like differences in dialects? Is it like geographic differences or yeah, what are some causes that you found? Yeah, that's also a really, really great question. Geography actually plays a really important role um, because we find routinely that kind of communities that are more geographically kind of blocked off. So for example, if they live on a difficult terrain, like where there are lots of mountains or the jungle is really dense, those are the languages that are actually least likely to change from outside influence because people don't get to them and because they don't talk to other people, right? And this is why the places in the world that best preserve linguistic diversity and have the most languages are the ones that are like super forested, super hilly, the Amazon, mm -hmm. Papua, things like that, right? So mm -hmm. it's kind of like you already know that the more remote your village is, the more likely it is to preserve certain oddities or like conservatisms um, and the less likely it is to have foreign influence versus for example if you're a village right by the rain road because the other thing that's cool is that um, when languages loan words right obviously we have lots of loans for words like car um, bus you know like these are the most likely words that are going to be loaned into a language because your native community doesn't have it it's introduced from the outside Depending on when exactly your language loans it, the words are also going to look different. Because if you loan it, let's say before the speakers have tipped, um, have undergone a certain sound change, before they picked up like a certain accent, the word is going to sound different than if they borrowed it from after. Does that make sense? Hmm. And so kind of like if you have dialectal differences, it also could be from words that are non-native. It could be words that are like TV and they just say the word TV differently. Because at one point they borrowed TV when the language had a V sound. And at one point, they borrowed TV when the language didn't. So they were still using F. And you can use those tiny, tiny differences as well to tell you, okay, do we know when they had the F sound? If we know when they had the F versus P sound, we can guess when they borrowed this word in versus that group borrowed this word in. Is it because they met the Dutch at a different time from these people and things like that? So. Oh, well, yeah, that's really fascinating. I never considered how like at different points in time that where like the language is at different stages that can also influence it. So yeah, that's really yeah. eye-opening. And so since we're talking a little bit about geography and kind of the movement of people, how mm -hmm. does like historical linguist, uh, linguistics inform our understanding of human migration and the spread of languages throughout history? Yeah, oh, that's a really great question. So one of the big goals of historical linguistics is kind of show genetic relationship between languages mm -hmm. that we currently have. Right. So we know that Spanish and Italian are related because as soon as you look at them, you can tell yeah. right? they look so similar. Mm -hmm. But we can also reconstruct. We know that their ancestors lasted and we can kind of, we know where the Latin kind of like center of the empire was and how they got into all the different parts of where the Romance languages are nowadays. Like we know that Brazilian Portuguese, for instance, is very far away from what we want to say is like the Romance homeland because everyone else lives in like Iberia and stuff, you know. <laughs> Um, and so one part of doing rec reconstruction is you look at 
similarities between languages as they stand. And then you walk back to figure out what the proto-language was and where the proto-language was spoken. But this is all done entirely based on grammatical features, like what sounds they have or like what particular grammatical constructions they have, how they make possession or something like that. Right. But people were doing this way before we had things like DNA, way before we had things like genetic testing. And so even in the 1800s, a lot of Indo-Europeanists, people studying the languages of Europe and India, already had these ideas of like, okay, Sanskrit is related to Greek, and this is how they're related. This is the language one that went off first. Latin and Italian are together, but they're separate from German. German is like um, totally with like Dutch and stuff. And they had all these ideas based just on grammar. And it took a hundred it took 200 years to confirm a lot of these things because it's only now that we can go and find the genetic and find the archaeological evidence. And the most exciting thing is that historical linguistics has made lots of hypotheses and guesses and models that were confirmed 200 years later. Mm. So, for example, with Indo-European, we have a pretty good, it's been long debated uh, um, whether or not they come from like the steppes kind of area or like somewhere else in like Central Asia. And the whole idea is like, how did they out of that to go to Europe, you know, to India, everywhere else. And all of our hypotheses were most recently confirmed by the use of ancient DNA. So Harvard actually has an ancient DNA lab. It's really cool. The guy came in and gave us a talk where they go and find like the optical bone, which is like the little one of the little bones in your ear, because apparently that bone, you know, is the best preserver of the type of DNA they need to test this. And using those samples from like literally thousands of years ago, mm -hmm. they found exactly the same migration patterns as were predicted based on historical linguist reconstructions, right? So we're saying this language probably branched off earlier. It's the most conservative, it looks the weirdest, and then this language kind of branched off later and is younger and stuff. And the kind of order of branching exactly matches the order of migration. They can tell this population went here first, and then this population, the Italians and the Celts were one genetic group, they went off together, and the Greeks and the Sanskrit people, the Indians were like separate and stuff like that. So I just thought that was a very cool example because science just confirmed everything, yeah. you know, and this was just people sitting in their libraries like 200 years ago thinking that they look kind of similar and stuff. Mm. So. Yeah, it's so cool how linguistics can piece together like the history of human and just human history in general, even so many years in the past and confirm theories in the present. And so talking about genetics, there seems to be some intersections between historical linguistics with other fields. So could you maybe talk about like how historical linguists may collaborate with other fields to better inform their understanding? Oh, that's interesting. I, I don't know if there's actually that much collaboration just because the methods are very different. So like historical linguists don't really kind of do experiments or science in the same way. Mm -hmm. But um, what is useful from kind of like genetics and um, for example, psychologists, right, is that the more we learn about the actual science of acquisition, for example, how babies learn languages, the more we can apply that to our theories of historical change. Because the idea is that humans aren't old enough, um, in the sense of have, having language long enough, that the acquisition of language should have changed that much. Definitely not when we're talking about how an ancient Greek baby acquired ancient Greek as compared to like a modern day, let's say, like uh, Irish speaker, right? The baby should still be doing the same thing. So when we learn about the type of mistakes children make and when we can figure out the psychological reasons they do it, that's also a great source for understanding why language change happens. 
because children are really the innovators and the leaders of language change. They're the ones who start kind of new patterns, acquire it, and kind of like spread it, right? It's always the younger generation that spreads new slang. It's always the younger generation that comes up with new constructions. Um, it's quite often that a younger generation will accept, you know, things that are ungrammatical to their parents, for instance. So when we do experiments to figure out why they do that, we can also walk backwards and see and kind of postulate they must have done that in the past as well. And this is why now in Latin we have uh, now in French we have this weird change as compared to Latin because the Latin babies were like super productive. So that's the kind of collaboration, one type of collaboration that you have with acquisition. There's also um, kind of collaboration with statistical computational people. So a lot of people are doing kind of like. Um, models of language learning where they just feed it into AI or like neural nets or like a black box and stuff to figure out how the machine and how the computer does that. And the interesting thing about that is that the computer introduces complexity and irregularity as well. And that kind of uncertainty, for example, it can tell us that, you know, uh, if I were crying this, I would be 90% certain that it's this form versus this form. And the kind of uncertainty, again, tells you this is where the change is going to happen. Hmm. If the computer is unsure about something, if the data is like not too clear, and stuff, that's something that we can also do. And the other cool thing is that you can feed an entire vocabulary list from languages, mm -hmm. and computers can now tell you what percentage likelihood it is that they're related based on mm -hmm. um, how many phonemes they share in common, you know, and things like that. So again, that's another way of confirming our hypotheses, right? We can postulate two languages are related, and then you give the information to the computer, and the computer was basically was what, what we were doing, but way faster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're like, yep, I confirm, they're probably related, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And so how does the study of like historical language, languages shape our understanding of modern languages today? Yeah, um, I think the, it's called the uniformitarian hypothesis, and it's something we saw from geography, but the idea is basically that the forces in play with regards to language learning and language change nowadays would have been the same as those um, used in the past, because like I said earlier, humans just haven't had you know full language for that long. And so it's interesting because anytime you postulate a change happening in the past, you can then test it. It's like, it also works the other way around, right? You can then test it to be like, okay, would kids have this issue? Would kids do this change? Or if you postulate that kids have a change right now, you can go back and see if it applies to the past and stuff. So I think it's quite interesting because you can really work at it from both directions, essentially. Um, and yeah, it tells us a lot in the sense of kind of what features and what patterning humans kind of tend towards over time in the sense of like if humans are always likely to make the same change or if humans are always likely to group information in the same way that can give you tendencies and so one good example of this is that we have a lot of cyclic changes which means changes that keep happening in the history of a single language again and again so for example a good example of this is the Jespersen cycle which refers to how negation works so um, if you know any French, you know that how you mark negation is by saying ne and then da 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 pa. And you kind of like, um, if you're speaking proper French, you have to say both parts in order to say negation. Like if I don't, uh, yeah, like if I, I don't uh, uh, know something, je ne sais pas or whatever like that. Uh, but it didn't used to be the case, right? Nowadays, um, a lot of young people will only say the pa and they won't say the ne anymore. They'll just kind of leave out the first element and it's considered sloppy speaking. But if you go back, like not even 100, 200 years, it used to be that they only had ne, they would never have pa. And so it's interesting because this is a very typical cycle of reinforcement. So you start by saying, I don't want it. And then you reinforce it by being like, I really don't want it. I don't want it at all. I don't want it even a little bit. 
And that's what fa means. Fa actually means a step or like a little bit, right? And it basically was French people said, I don't want to go not even one step. And eventually, palm becomes, in, palm becomes interpreted as negation as well, right? And mm -hmm. so from going saying, I don't want to go even a little bit, you just say, I don't go a little bit. And then a little bit becomes negation. And that's why now mm -hmm. in French, you can just use the pa, essentially. You don't need to use ne anymore, even though it's literally saying like, I go step, right? That doesn't make any sense. But yeah. this has been found to happen again and again. So in Italian, the exact same thing, non is not. But mica means a crumb. And so Italians are like, I don't want to eat even a crumb. And now you can just use mica to mean negation, essentially, to mean no. And this has been attested not only in the European. I just have found an example of this in Timor, for instance. So we know that this happens in like every language. It happens in Chinese. And we know that it's because humans just love to be dramatic. They just love to exaggerate. But why say I don't want to go when it can be like, I don't want to go not even a little bit. Right. But because they're so wants to exaggerating, other speakers are like, yeah, they're probably exaggerating. And so they kind of reconstruct that and assume they're not being that serious. And they therefore reduce the reinforcer to just being normal negation. And that's how cyclic changes happen. It's like this cycle of exaggeration and then semantic bleaching because other speakers are like, no, no, he, he doesn't mean it that much. Essentially. <laughs> yeah, I found it interesting that despite so many differences across our languages, like there's still some uniformity in just our human nature of wanting to exaggerate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. And I'm just also curious, like when an archaeologist, for example, digs up this old ancient artifact with a whole new language that no one ever like has been exposed to for, what's the process of that goes from there? Yeah. So I have to be honest and say that most linguists don't do that anymore. Um, it's mostly yeah. archaeologists who do mm -hmm. most of the work and then they'll ask linguists for help. Yeah. Um, and it's also because we haven't found like a lot of new um, resources in the last it's kind of like the golden era of like discovering all this stuff is kind of over so we found almost everything that we've had and mm -hmm. we're just kind of working on what we do um, um, on what we have so far so like there are probably no more Rosetta stones out there because that's really what you need you want yeah. a document that has several of it in the same language but the boring answer is that it's a lot of carbon dating and it's a lot of math Right. So the first step is to figuring out physicality, materially wise, what the kind of um, object is telling you and walking backwards from there, because that can already give you lots of context as to, you know, what culture this was probably from, what people were using it, what other technology they had at the same time, because we can also find relationships between that. Um, and then the next step is to basically go through every single sign and find what we call collocations. So you need like a little intern or something like an undergrad, basically, to find um, for every two characters that appear next to each other, for example, the letter A and B, how frequently do they appear together as opposed to, for example, A and B? And based on numerical collocations and frequencies like that, we can begin to figure out what the word boundaries or morphing boundaries are. Mm -hmm. Because if you imagine, if it's just like a script, for example, if you've seen like Chinese script, right? It's like, how can you tell what the words are? It's just all random mm -hmm. without any spaces, right? And so by figuring out what words occur commonly together, we can begin to draw those lines in. And we can also begin to figure out, okay, are these representing sounds, like an alphabet, or are these representing ideas? For example, like an ideogram, like hieroglyphics, or again, like Chinese and stuff like that. So it really boils down to math because based on the frequency, you can also find out, for example, how many vowels a language had or things like that. But the best thing is if you can identify zones. If you can identify, so for example, this was very important when we were doing hieroglyphics. Um, every time they wrote like the name of an important ruler, they would write it inside a little cartouche. So they would like make this little oval around the name and decorate mm -hmm. it because it's that kind of the way of like honorific, like showing that the name was honored essentially. 
And some of the, most of the names were Egyptian. So that's not that helpful. But some of the names were, some of the names were Greek. Some of the names were, for example, um, of like other cultures in the region, of people who we already knew existed, right? And so we can then work backwards because these are basically just like loans, just like television, they're loaning the name Caesar. And then if they're loaning the name Caesar, we can figure out what their word for C, what their word for S was and how they represent that in the language. So it's really about identifying all of the little quotes, right? You want to look at the punctuation. Like sometimes you don't even know they're writing left to right or right to left. And so mm -hmm. you need to see in the little stone, okay, when they finish a sentence, do they end up squishing it in at like the left side of the paper or the right side of the paper? Because humans don't change, right? I'm sure you've been in this sort of situation where you're trying to write a note to someone and it's like, ah, I ran out of space until you get smaller and smaller towards the end. Humans have been doing that for like thousands of years. And that's how we can tell whether the language is written left to right or right to left, whether or not they have enough space at the end and then they're like adding little carrots and they're like, oh no, or like scratching stuff out. So those are the kind of like the techniques that we use. Yeah, that's such a fascinating process. And I think that's all the questions I, that I had, but do you have anything else that you'd like to add on? Um, I think I'm good. I just kind of wanted to like emphasize that a lot of people think doing historical linguistics means just focusing on European languages and Romance mm -hmm. languages, but that's just because that's where all the historical linguists came from, mm -hmm. <laughs> because obviously they were all just like Germans and French people for the longest of time, and also because that's all the resources that we had. But now I think it's really an exciting frontier, because we know... They're probably going to be mad at me for saying this, but we know probably all we need to know about the history of English, right? But there's so mm -hmm. many languages that are currently being lost right. that, you know, are not only worthy of, worthy of synchronic description, but have so much that they could tell us about the history of Southeast Asia, the history of Africa, mm -hmm. you know, the history of, like, Oceania. And I think it's really important that we start working on these, not just presently, but also their history before the languages are lost, essentially. Yeah, right. that's all. <laughs> a very important consideration for sure. Yeah, but thank you so much again for coming on. It was such a pleasure to hear all about your research and all about historical languages. So thank you so much again. Awesome. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation and learned something new. Please stay tuned for future episodes as well. And if you would like to be a guest on my podcast show, feel free to reach out to me on my Instagram at Claire's Languages. Thank you.